Now then, I'm watching the leaves fine doing through the trees already, gosh. It is the start of autumn. And welcome to this autumnal edition of Grow Radio, brought to you for our corners of the virtual sheds and real gardens. I'm Frida Morrison, and it's a pleasure to be back with you in the real garden out here the new. As I said, the leaves are beginning to fall. Mere challenges this year, I would say, in the garden as well as the world. And we're feeling the effects of climate change. The bees have been struggling in this part of the country. Weak days meant they couldn't get out together nectar. Near a lot of honey this year, maybe. But we did hear good weather at the start of summer. No long forgotten as the trees begin to change colour already. But we, we did start this autumn with good weather. And speaking of trees, the wheat weather has meant a huge spurt in growth for shrubs and trees. Time for an awful lot of pruning, methinks. And then there's the greenhouse. Let's get inside and see if it's happening. Well, see if it's nay happening, maybe. But look at the positives first. I have a good crop of tomatoes, again. The floors are looking good, especially the helenium blossoms, and that muck great cut floors. But, oh, there is a sad story. A rabbit got in, a rabbit got into the greenhouse, ate all my salads. My pack shoy was just looking at its best. And then next day gone, the carrots disappeared completely. Couldn't have found the hole. And, of course, the wee monkeys had burrowed the hole underneath the foundation of the greenhouse. And could we get rid of that rabbit? Boy, was it enjoying itself in here. It's nae getting in again, I can tell you. In this programme, Dave Mitchell's going to, to tackle the, the subject of changing weather patterns. And our cook, Claire Patterson, has been pitting together some half-a-fine recipes in keeping with the hearst. So, I think further ado, just one with me, doing the garden path again, and get this season started. And welcome to Grow Radio. Through the garden into our virtual sheds. Let me introduce you to my companions in our Edinburgh shed. He far kens things. A past curator of Edinburgh Botanics and new deputy chair of the National Trust for Scotland. Hello, Dave Mitchell. Are you there? Aye, Frida. Fit like in your ear. Oh, nipe in the chavin, as I say. Now, a reminder us about fitting into your got to put your focus on this episode, Dave. Oh, I'm going to be looking back and catching up on what's been a weird and trying summer gardening-wise. But mm-hmm. we'll put that in us and we'll look ahead regard to what's today and the next few weeks as we head into autumn and winter. So, busy, busy, busy. Right. And in our Loch Arbor shed, our star cook, or a Loch Arbor kitchen, come in, Claire Patterson. Claire, are you there? Hiya, Frida, I'm here. Okay, give us a wee taste of the fits on your menu. Uh, so today we've got some recipes to use up the last of that summer veg. So we've got courgettes baked with ricotta and tomatoes. And then we've got cucumbers and tomatoes with a green yogurt herb sauce. And then we're going to use up some of that lovely stone fruit and the, the apples that are coming in now in the garden. So we've got a plum and bramble frangipan tart. And then we've got some crepes with a lovely apple filling. Oh, that sounds just ideal. 
And in our Edinburgh studio, the manny that steers us through the wiggly waves, come in Richard Werner. Aye, aye. Aye, aye. <laughs> aye, aye. It's been lovely in your garden this summer, Richard. Oh, well, do you know, I unintentionally laid a new patio in a sunny spot, and we've been actually fair enjoying that, so when the sun's been out, made use of lots of lovely sea glass that the girls have been collecting, and do you know what, it's just nice to have that wee bit where you can go and have your, your room outside, you know, so I've been fair it's, loving it's, that. You kind of beat it, can you? And did the bairns enjoy the, the summer in the garden? They've had a great time. Do you know, one of the, the cool things that they did at school is they do outdoor learning, and at the start of the season they sowed some carrots in, in their outdoor boxes, and lo and behold, just this week they did a harvest and they had their really nice-looking carrots with some hummus in class, so they've been loving it. They've been having oh. a good growth. It <laughs> sounds just excellent. This is what should happen. Yeah. Absolutely delighted to hear that. Brilliant. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, thanks, Richie. On to some garden questions. Nea for Dave this time, a couple for Claire. Dave for you first. Now, fit about growing veg outdoors. Fit can we sow the new or plan to sow something for a small garden or a bigger garden or even allotments? Dave. Well, you can see that here in the central belt and further north in Scotland, I'm not a big fan of starting things kind of like veg for seed and overwintering them. Mainly because it's a battle for light. Can the day length shortens, the temperatures drop. I'm mere pragmatic and I'm thinking about doing other big jobs on the allotment, such as red newt the plots or red newt borders, digging, composting, pruning fruit, and basically getting all thing, tied it up and ready for the road before the winter really comes. Now, some folk don't agree with me in that approach, and that's fine. They're all thinking about certain things a while now. Maybe they've got a tunnel or cloches and they can scutter about with salad leaves or radish or pea shoots. <laughs> me, I'm just mere content to watch my Brussels sprouts, winter cabbage, kale and leeks that's been in the ground, ground a while and looking good. But if you want to give something a try, there's still time to deal with some garlic, get that in, mine and get a good mulch, turnips are another good bet, Perpetual spinach is it something else that you could use, and some folk biding near the coast can would maybe even try broad beans and stuff like that. And if that's no your style and you just want to get things going, don't forget late in October you could saw some green manure. It will come up, do its thing, and then you can get it dug in, and that'll help the plots. Other jobs today: the new lavender plant needing trims, fruit and veg to harvest, freeze and store. If you've got a wee garden pond, get some netting over it, stop the leaves from falling in. Get your spring bulbs ordered. If you've any tender plants out there, they'll need lifted and maybe replaced with winter pansies. The lawn will be demanding your attention, spiking, removing thatch, repairing damaged bits, roses to prune. It's Danny kid yourself, it's no time for sitting in a chair and watching the telly. Oh, aye, and that reminds me, there he's laughing. You uh-huh. have a lawn more to clean, Mr. No, Richie. Arkin. He's not going to do it. He's I'm coming to inspect that more in the tool shed. Quite right. Question for Claire. Fit herb is your favourite addition to dishes and fit dishes, Claire? Uh, so the, the short answer would be, I would just be really boring and say bay leaves because I use them all the time, but I'm going to go a wee bit more adventurous. Um, I think you quite often use like a combination of herbs. It's really difficult to pick just one because quite often you maybe use something like lots of parsley, but then a little bit of a stronger herb like mint or tarragon or something that that you need to use in moderation. I think my favourite would change as well because of the time of year. So Mm. in winter, your woody herbs, your rosemary and your thyme bring that kind of warmth and, and sort of aromatic sort of note. In the spring, when the chives just come through, it's it's just like a a bit of freshness and a, a sign of the new the new season starting. 
But seeing as today, the tomatoes are ripe in the polytunnel, the sun is warm, I'm going to have to say basil mm. because it's just oh, no. when the sun's shining and you've got a warm tomato, oh. a little dribble of olive oil, um, a few torn basil leaves, it's it's all you need. I love I'm, sh- I'm sitting in Venice yeah. in the sunshine. I can just, oh, wonderful. Oh. Okay. Dave, uh, a question for you. Is it too late to expect tomatoes to ripen and will cutting off the tops help them ripen? Well, it's not that late yet. Eh? There's a bit of time. You can you can cut the tops off and cut the side leaves off, and that'll help. It'll let more light in. But you know, if they didn't ripen, it's important to mind that the fruits have to be really full sized before they will ripen. And that means if you cut them open, just you know them, and you see that gel like substance running about the seeds. If that's there, you should be able to get them ripe. If that gel-like substance isn't there, it's a what of the cookery book for recipes for green tomatoes. Aye. Now, there is a way that you can ripen them. For goodness sake, don't put them in the fridge because they'll no ripen in the fridge. No. If they're stored below 10 degrees C, you haven't a chance of getting them to ripe because the chemical reactions that make ripening happen that basically involves ethylene, uh, it's a plant hormone, that only forms when it's warm. So the best road to ripen them, if the gel's there and they're green, spit them in a cardboard box or an old drawer with a ripe banana mm. or an banana. apple. Yep, and, or put them in a paper pot, nay plastic or polythene, because that'll make them sweat and rot. And another wee thing is, then they stack them up on top of you and lay them flat. Mm. Put them in a box, in the dark, cover them over, ripe banana, keep an eye on them and they should ripen. What about cutting the tops off the plants? Well, that'll help, as I said. You can cut the tops off and cut the side leaves off. That'll let the light in. Uh-huh. That'll let the light in if they're on the plant. Cut them open. If there's none of that wee jelly substance present in the middle, you'll not get them right. You're right. Doing, the, doing the box. Okay, question for Claire again. Cabbage. Boring, boring side dish. How do you make it more palatable? Claire. Uh, cabbage. Well, a couple of things come to mind for the humble cabbage. So one one option is to char your cabbage which has become a bit of a thing the last couple of years char charred cabbage you cut it into wedges brush it with oil a bit of salt and then you can either put it on a barbecue or in a really hot pan and just get a lovely bit of color on it and then you finish it in the oven and then you can add like a sort of some sort of flavorful dressing like a vinaigrette or a flavored butter and then that just sort of brings a whole different kind of flavour dimension. So it's a, mm-hmm. a million miles away from your Bell's cabbage. Mm. <laughs> the other option is to stuff the leaves. So you can fill them with like a rice mixture. Mm. You can use meat. And then you steam them until you have these lovely little kind of pockets of flavour. So I sometimes do a version with sort of ground pork. And then you mix in ginger, garlic, sibes, chilli bit of sesame oil, a bit of soy sauce, and then you just sort of put that into a blanched cabbage leaf, roll it up, put them all in a wee steamer, and you just steam those till the, the cabbage is really tender and the filling's cooked through, and then you can have those sort of by themselves, or you could have them with a kind of dipping sauce with more of those kind of Asian flavours. You couldn't say it was tasteless or boring or no. anything at all. It's, That's it's exactly delicious. what I'm looking for. Well done, you, Claire. There you go. Right, a last question for new Dave. It's, it's time, new to cut hedges. So it's the best way to reduce a hedge by a quarter, apart from just tucking the chainsaw. Is there a way to keep that shape? Well, you can see that that's a, cutting a hedge is an art. 
getting it right and reducing a hedge in size whether it's its width or its height is a big job the cutting's the easy bit the biggest job's clearing up these days and Aye. getting rid of the prunings that's the bugbear but the first thing you hit a day is ask yourself what kind of hedge is it will it break away if I cut it down by a quarter mm-hmm. will it grow away again you know Look at it and think, is it you? But how, do, it how do you shape it up? It's ah, like, yeah, because I've got, wha- it's wha- a Petone wha- Aster hedge I'm struggling with, and it's huge, it's too tall. Well, hedges in general, it. whether it's beech or hawthorn or privet, they'll all take a good thrashing. So will Petone Aster, to a degree. Now, a few quick tips, if you're going to cut it back. Don't hash at it, be slow and steady, think about what you're doing, constantly looking at it and stepping back and seeing what's going on. I mean, you can cut another bit off. You can't add it back on. But what about the shape? Do you make a pointy shape or do you make a flat well, shape? If you I'm just... sure if I make a flat shape, the snare's going to land no, on top no, of the heavy No, snow. no, you need If your height you're cutting it down, put a line along it and then get it all level first, the whole length, keep looking at it. And then when you've got that right and you've cleared up all around about your feet and everything, then... Put a little gentle slope, maybe about six inches, just on the top, either side, so that it, the snow slide off it. You know, and that's the last job that you should be doing, is putting that slope on it after you get it all level. Okay. You know, and, mm-hmm. and the other wee just thing, I, I just got to say, you know, stay safe, especially if you're using steps and ladders. I always think if you're doing that, you're better have somebody else running about and giving you a hand to clear up and just making sure everything's fine and that the steps are level on the ground. What you want when you're finished is a nice straight line along the top, a nice wee bevel on it. If that's the height that's coming down, that's fine. If you're reducing the width of the hedge, and I mean of taking a four foot, five foot wide beach hedge and cutting 18 inches off the inside, in year and then three years later cutting the same off the other side to mark it narrow again it will survive that but just didn't be in a rush tuck your time nice frosty day grand way to keep warm and burn off the calories so you can get in and indulge in some of that nice <laughs> I cabbage I need to burn, burn a, few, <laughs> a few of them off I was just yeah. thinking about Claire when she was talking about that cabbage I, I sometimes put a load of butter and caraway seeds in mine that's quite nice I'd want to burn up the calories, a load of butter on this piece. Well, that's where you can hear that if you've been out cutting the hedge all day. He he gives it a hand and tucks a waffy in there. Here we go again. Thank you, Mr. Dave. And I turn to matters of food again, never far fail. Thoughts clear. Give your first two recipes, please. So today we're going to start with a a dish that's courgettes, baked in ricotta and tomatoes. So you're starting with a couple of handfuls of cherry tomatoes. At the moment, we've got those lovely ones that are there's yellow and orange and red, and it's just an absolute rainbow. Toss them with a wee bit of olive oil and salt and roast them until they sort of collapse down into a really simple sauce. Meanwhile, shave some long strips from your courgettes. You don't use the middle bit, so that can go to one side for a super for what have you, compost. <laughs> and then basically mix together ricotta with salt and pepper, lemon juice, a wee bit of shredded basil and a few toasted pine nuts if you've got them. Um, Put a wee dollop of that onto each of your courgette strips and roll it up. Arrange those on top of the tomatoes, open side up. We drizzle olive oil over the top and then bake it in the oven for about 20 minutes or until those courgettes are tender. 
and that's just a sort of different way to to serve them. You could serve them with rice or pasta, or just with some nice crusty bread, and that's that sounds that's your... lovely, absolutely ideal for this time of year. And then another one from the polytunnel. Another in. Oh, another in. Another one from the polytunnel. I've got another in. So we've got cucumbers and tomatoes <gasps> with a green herby yogurt sauce. So at the minute, we've got so many cucumbers. It's been such a good year for them here. My kids eat about 10 a day, but there's still plenty for this. Um, and the sauce for this is just a really, really simple sauce, which you can make in a food processor or a blender, or you can chop it by hand. But if you've got a blender, stick it all in. So you've got Greek yogurt, a couple of tablespoons of olive oil, salt, zest and juice of a lemon, lots and lots of fresh soft herbs. So your parsley and your chives, you've got coriander, dill, basil, whatever fits your own taste. Quiz that up and then you can taste it to just see how you feel. You can add a wee bit more herbs or salt or whatever it is just to really bring that to life. Plop that dressing on the serving dish and then you just top it with a big mess of roughly chopped tomatoes and cucumbers. If you've got big cucumbers, you can peel and de them. But if you've got the nice wee ones, just chop them up as is. And then just like mound that on the plate. And again, that's just a really simple, simple salad if you've got a lot of those polytunnel veg ripe at the minute. Oh, that sounds absolutely delightful. I think this has been the year of cucumbers, actually. It's been a mm-hmm. lot of cucumbers. And yeah. that's another thing, tomatoes and cucumbers. The rabbits couldn't have reached the cucumbers because I had them stringed up, you see. In fact, I had kept away for nests listening to them. They were trying to launch themselves off launching pads trying to reach the cucumbers. They're going, wee, bonk. <laughs> I just made that up. I just made that up. Okay. Dave, thank you, Claire. Thank you, Claire. Some other good ideas there. Dave, I'll come back to you for mere wisdom of the elders. Now, this being the summerine, and autumn delights us with a kaleidoscope of colour. There are new weather and climate patterns emerging. You've been watching and taking notes in the changes. Sit have you observed? Well, Frida, you kind of been thinking about this kind of thing for a long time, and I think this year's we've seen more challenges, it's you know, than perhaps ever in my gardening lifetime. Last winter was cold and it was damaging, and I lost a lot of old friends, including my ten-year-old tree fern. I was really scunnered about that. Then the spring came and it was ever hot too soon, and then it got cold, and then. That meant it was a bit late in coming overall. Hot, cold, hot, cold. Plants didn't again what they were doing. My early season salads in the end just got fried and they never really caught up. And later sowings, it was just too hot for them. Even the ties, they were just sitting there like saying, oh, come on, man, what's going on? You know, it, it, it really was difficult. And then, you know, if you look at things like tubs and hanging baskets and pots, it was water, water, water every day. And at the end point, you know, I actually thought, is this right? Is it ethical? Is it sustainable? But thankfully, it cooled down a wee bit. But the last two or three days here in Edinburgh, it's been over 24 every day. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but I water where I can most of the time. And I get as much water as I can out of my water butts. You know, watering where I can saves water. Squirting hose everywhere is no the answer. When you fill things up, pots and tubs, fill them right to the top and then let it drain away. You know, on the bright side. My sweet peas, they did really well, even although they were late going out. But now, the last few days with the hot weather, they're covered in powdery mildew, but, ah, well, that's life. I'm not going to get fast out about it at this time of year. The dahlias were late in getting away, but they've been good. I've had a good show on my dahlias. 
and the Nifofias from South Africa, I think they thought they were back in the Drakensburg. But stepping away from Edinburgh and looking around the country, I was away up at Inverhue in the summer and I was talking to Kevin Ball, he'd given her there about what kind of things they're growing now that we would never have thought about trying outside when I worked there 40 years ago. Yeah. I mean, you've got a lot of tender exotics, some of them from South Africa, things like Berkia, Purpurera, Zulu Warrior, it's a wonderful big spiky daisy-like thing with purple flowers, blue, it's oh, bonnie, and then there's big succulents like Aeonium Garnet, you know, great statuesque groups of them in the garden, sitting next to agaves, we would never have tried these things 40 years ago, but in other parts of the garden there's tender evergreens, it's a beautiful shrub for the Himalayas with palmate leaves like a palm tree called Scheffler, Rhododendrifolia. Beautiful thing. And then on the drive, there was a great big daisy on a single stalk with huge leaves, a thing called Dendrocerus littoralis. It comes from Juan Fernandez Island, where Robinson Crusoe, Ken Alexander Selkirk, was, was stranded. Mm -hmm. And just walking around the garden with Kevin, there were things that I was familiar with, things that were new. And that's what's happening across the whole country. There's no doubt that climate change is impacting on our gardens. It's changing what we grow, how we grow it. But that also brings opportunity. I think the key thing is to be observant. Try new things. Always try to be as sustainable as possible. And I'm sure if you talk to yourself, Claire, Richie, mm -hmm. this year you'll have all had challenges and unexpected successes. That's the nature of gardening. It's the job that we do. But I think the one thing that we can say is we can expect Maria in the future. And the best way yeah. to garden, I think, going forward is to adapt and survive and to learn lessons for other gardens in warmer climates across the globe. And the internet is something that facilitates that. I mean, a good 10 years ago, I remember going to visit a botanic garden in Phoenix in Arizona. And it was just wonderful because they had a demonstration garden there that showed people how to live in harmony with the desert and live in a sustainable way. I think that would be a wonderful thing if we were to start to see some of that in our public gardens here, examples about how you can garden sustainably, how you can plant sustainably, create new ways of thinking so that we're working with the climate, not against it. And if that means losing something and no doing something, then fine, try something else instead. You know, I mean, yeah. we were talking about Pak Choi. When I was a young apprentice, that was something that was in a book for overseas. You wouldn't have I seen suppose. it here. Now well, it's everywhere. Right. It's changing. Even things like chard. They grew that in chard in the Victorian times, but you didn't see it a lot except in really good gardens, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Now it's in every seed catalogue that's got. You can, I was looking out the window uh, this morning before we came together, and I've got a whole heap of my Scots roses blooming again. Mm -hmm. uh, on the on the Scots rose, uh, the Pimpinella folia, that one. Aye, the Pimpinella rose, rose Pimpinella folia. Aye, aye, the Pimpinella folia. There's a whole heap of, of Scots roses. Well, you'll get, you'll get a second again. flush on that with the heat. Aye. Mm -hmm. I so mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the window at my sweet peas, and they, although they've got powdery mildew on them, there must be 60 or 70 blooms. So I'll have to get the missus to cut another bunch. The more you cut them, and the more you keep the seed pods come. off them, the more aye. they keep flowering. Right. Thank you for that, Dave, and uh, good advice as well contained in that. Much appreciated. And as we've often said on this programme and others, that even the best wiser measuring changes in the weather or climate is by watching the bees. And the beekeepers in my garden report that the, the wee workers have been struggling with the wheat weather. Couldn't I get out together the nectar? 
and honey might be the, on the scarce side this year. But the good news is, young beekeepers are learning the skills and taking an interest in the job. And we have some of the best young beekeepers in the world. And we have proof through a competition set up by the IMYB. After three years of fruit competition because of the pandemic, young beekeepers from countries around the world met again in Slovenia in July. Teams via the IMYB, the International Meeting of Young Beekeepers, gathered in Slovenia to compete with one another and put their skills to the test. Three young beekeepers represented Scotland. Harry Hose, aged 15, from Loch Lomond. Marvin Smith, near Aberdeen, aged 15 as well. And Finlay Taylor, 13, also from near Aberdeen. And you'll hear who they got on in a minute. And I joined the Tarlin Bee Group on Deeside in Aberdeenshire to celebrate the young beekeepers' endeavours and enjoy the cake especially made for the event. First, spoke to Bron Wright, trustee for the Scottish Beekeepers Association and officer for young beekeepers. Bron, tell me more about the IMYB. Well, it's been going now for... Uh, about 12 years I think with a break for Covid of course and it, originally it was um, the uh, brainchild of a lovely gentleman from the Czech Republic called Jiri Pizza and he his dream was to get a bunch of international young beekeepers together just for a meeting to have fun to learn about beekeeping to learn all about how international relationships can be developed and um, everybody getting to know each other with the main theme of beekeeping. Okay, so off they went. It sounds fun, but there's a lot of hard work involved as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, we, all the beekeepers, uh, young beekeepers that we take with us, have to fill in, um, have to fit into three criteria. The, The main thing is that they're in the age group that the IMYB people set, which is between 12 and 18. We ask for them always to be a member of the Scottish Beekeepers Association and we also ask for them to have at least a basic certificate in beekeeping so that we know they all have a level of competence. So they apply to go and you pick the team. Yes. But then they get there. And this year they went to Slovenia. Mm -hmm. Fabulous time had by all, but as I said, working hard. So what did they have to do? Well, first of all, they got to to settle down into what this year was a massive monastery. And we were looked after by monks who (laughs) served us, who made the meals, helped to make the meals, served us the meals, and generally, you know, kept an eye on everything. It just sounds like a... But the the important (laughs) thing, when I was listening to you you doing the presentation there, the important thing to you was the team, the team working, Mm -hmm. wasn't Mm -hmm. it? And Mm -hmm. because they were being observed in everything. Mm -hmm. Now, the winner was Austria this year? Yes, yes. Scotland came 12th, but that was a close thing, wasn't it? It was, because the leading team was about 79%, Scotland was 74%. Wow. There were lots of ties on the way. We tied with several other countries who were 74%, but they'd taken the um, totals to a, a large number of decimal points. So that's how close it was. It was just like the Olympics. I'd never seen anything like it before. <laughs> OK, I'm going to go across to Harry's mum, Leslie. Was it... Uh, a huge success for her. It, de- it definitely was a huge ex- success. I think quite daunting when they first arrived and got there and 150 children and lots of people not speaking English and like Herr Brown said, living in a, a monastery. <laughs> um, it was a little bit different. Uh-huh. Uh, 
but he absolutely loved it. By the end of it, he'd made lots of friends from different places in the world, had been offered to go and stay with uh, people who have got 600 beehives in Greece and other ones in Australia. And so he just talked about it for days when he came home. Absolutely loved it. Thank you both for, for being with us. And uh, the cake is being cut. I'm yes. keeping you from the cake. That's fine. Lovely. <laughs> okay, Thank I'll speak to you later on. I'll, I'll catch up with the, the three beekeepers just now. Okay, folks. On my right, we have... Finlay Taylor. And on my left... Harry Hose. And on my left... Morvan Sim. Right, Morvan. So, uh, Finlay and Morvan, you're both from Aberdeenshire. Yep. And Harry, you've just driven up from Loch Lomond. Yeah. That's a long way. Now, Finlay, tell me some of the jobs you had to be just examined on and watched doing. What were you, what were you into? The first one that comes to mind is the marking queens or marking drones, uh-huh. which is um, just basically what you would do to mark a queen to identify them in the hive. Uh-huh. So we had to do that, and it's just easier to do it with drones. Uh-huh. We also had to, in the mixed teams, so when all the other countries were split up into teams, we were um, had to make frames, but different ones. Uh-huh. What about you, uh, Harry? What did you have to do? Uh, what, yeah. what comes to mind? So we were given a beehive, and what we had to do was we had to separate half of the bees in the beehive into another hive so that they could produce their own queen and grow as a better, stronger colony. So we did that and we had to work as a team together so that we would get the maximum points and then we could finish higher up in the mixed teams rankings, which was really good. Wow. Marvin, what comes to mind? Um, one of the things we used to do in our international teams was we actually had to build a hive. Whoa. So they'd taken it all <laughs> apart and we had five minutes to see how much of it we could put together. That is amazing. That is amazing. So how did you get on with that? We did quite well, but there were still a few parts that we hadn't managed to attach. But they, they, what they'd done is they gave us decoy parts oh, to try trick us. Badness. Did yeah, badness, yeah. They did. Oh. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Uh, but you had you had your own secret weapon as well because you got you carried presents from your gran. Your gran had. Yep. You. Tell mm-hmm. me about that. Um, my granny made crochets like little bee keyrings for uh-huh. us and knitted me. Uh, it's like a bee teddy, uh-huh. so I could take with us as our mascot. Oh, and she got a certificate didn't she? Yeah. For that for her efforts, right? Highlights then. Back to you, Finley. What, what were you, what were your highlights? Highlights would probably be the. Um the Thursday, mm-hmm. where we were all just getting to, like, just socialising, and because I mean, yeah. Brian was talking about the importance of being in the team and meeting folk. Yeah, that, that was the underlying theme, I think, that everybody enjoyed doing that and meeting. Yeah. I was going to ask, um, maybe come to you, Harry. How did how did you get on with the language differences? Um, well, the language differences at the beginning were a bit difficult, but. Usually, we kind of all grouped up. The English-speaking countries kind of all grouped together. And over time, we would slowly, like, meet new people and try and... If we couldn't understand their language, we would kind of just, like, signal to them and we would still get to know them (laughs) and, like, play rugby and things like that. Because there were, what, 30 countries involved? Yeah. 34. 34? Ah. So, give me an idea of what countries were involved. Um, there was like Canada, America, Australia, lots of different European countries like uh-huh. France, um, people from like 
all over the world and a lot of them could speak really good English. Uh-huh. What, what you were saying, mm-hmm. Yeah, or some of them couldn't, but uh, some teams, if one of them spoke English, they'd like translate for us so we could still... And, and you're still handling live bees at the same time. Yeah. You're trying to cope with the language. Now I'm going to go to, to Harry because you got a special prize, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I came third place in the mixed teams, which was really lucky. I think one of the main reasons was because I was paired with the boy that won it overall. Uh-huh. But hopefully in the future, I've met so many people there and I've um, met one of the boys and they offered me a job to work in Greece for the summer wow. to work with their bees and they have over 600 hives. So that means that I could go there and work and I could like expand my knowledge and also help them at the same time with their bee farm. That is fantastic. Um- Folks, congratulations, and you came 12th overall, and yeah. yep. very close thing, but I think that, uh, and the, the Facelia honey won first prize, though, didn't it? Yeah. Come out to the whole world, the uh, Scottish Facelia honey won overall. 61 honeys. 61 honeys were forward. Yeah. 61 honeys. Facelia. Yeah. Thank you, and my very best wishes. Thank you very Thank much. You. Enjoy your cake. Thank you. Thank you. Leaving the young beekeepers Harry, Marvin and Finlay to enjoy their special cake. And we add our congratulations for the team's success. And of course, for them that are ahead the training on the young beekeepers, a great result. Congratulations to everybody. Fitter result. Team, what do you think of that? Young beekeepers, there is hope. There's hope for the world. I think that's a really inspiring piece, Frida. You know, and it's much deeper than just about bees. Mm-hmm. It's about cooperation between people. And if you yeah. think about bees, it's a hive mentality. They all support each other. They work together as a Good unit. Point. And that lesson was there in that international competition for all these young people that, you know, human beings can just as easily get on together and work together despite language. That's an experience these young folk will never, ever forget. I think it's a wonderful thing. Aye. Uh, Richie. Aye. Isn't that inspiring? I mean, inspiring that's absolutely, you to, absolutely brilliant to, to hear keep that. Honeybees, maybe. You know, Aye. there's there's kids out there that are getting out and about and, and looking after their nature and, and knowing that our pollinators are important and uh, you know, they're good custodians for the future, aren't they? Aye. Claire. I I mean it's just it's just really inspiring, isn't it? I mean it's such a honey's just one of those things like an ancient an ancient ingredient that's that's just been around forever and and the fact that there's so much enthusiasm with these young people to look after their bees is fantastic. Uh, it's 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 inspiring, as you say. Thanks, folk. Right, Richie, you've been yeah. quiet in the question form this this uh-huh. episode. Have you a question for Dave? Actually, yeah, do you know what I do? And it actually ties into your hedge question earlier, which was very Ooh. nicely answered, Dave, and I'll be using that for uh, another hedge I have in the it's garden a good answer. I'll quite be soon. Uh, but my question also revolves around hedges, and it's actually grown a, a, a new hedge. Uh, so we used to have a Forsythia hedge in our front garden many moons ago, about 20 years ago, and it got taken away so folk could look into our house, because it was a B&B then, I mean, what folk to look in? But we're now interested in re-establishing something in its place. Now, we've been looking at you. I think that's our winner. But I'm also curious about other alternatives. Uh, there's like a really nice bamboo hedge I've spotted, for example. Uh, but wondering if you've got any ideas, Dave. It's a full sun kind of spot. And also wondering what's the best way to prep the soil for such a, a venture. Thank you. Dave. Well, we can deal with that and they bother. 
thinking about your location in the city, nay far from the road. Aye. I think that Taxus backed us a grand choice, the U. Yeah. Why? Oh, Why? Simply, it's tolerant of city life. It's evergreen. Aye. It's solid. It grows fairly quickly. It's durable. It's long lasting. And it's also classy. Yeah, I like the look of the like the look of the you. You know, all the other fancy things, and I could give you a whole list. Just you know, it could be bamboo, it could be Fatinia Fraser Eye, Red Robin, Aye. Privet, Laurel, Beach. I don't like beach. It's messy. The leaves drop at an awkward time of year. Uh-huh. Use the boy to use. That's it. And oh, if you're cool. going to use it, I would encourage you to establish the hedge using plants that are root balled rather than potted. Okay. They're easily get. You can order them online, um, and they'll come. If you've got to use potted plants, it's very important to keep them well watered before you put them in, and well watered after, after. you put them in. Okay. I, I like root bald things. Right, okay. You want to put the plants in about two to three feet apart. You want the leader to be left alone to grow until all the plants are above the height that you want them to get, say five feet, something like that, Uh and then you can cut them to their level. Now, as regards preparing the ground, that's the the, the other challenge. You want to dig down a spitz depth with the spade, and you want a trench about two to three feet wide, and you want to fork the bottom of each spit so the drainage is good as you go along, Prepare the whole trench, let that settle. You'll have ordered your root ball plants, put them in, keep them watered. As I said, leave the leader to grow, trim the sides only to encourage branching. Yeah. I don't put manure or anything in the bottom of the trench. I just use a little grow more okay. um, in the spring, about two ounces to the square yard, and make sure you keep the plants well watered the first two or three years. If you do that, you will have a hedge that will see you and the generation after you. Fab. Is it quite a fast-growing thing, Dave? Well, it'll grow maybe, on average, four to five inches a year. So if you're getting a plant at, say, two to three feet high, then you'll be tempted to go bigger than that. Okay. You'll get your five-foot hedge within three years, wow. and it'll be nice and solid and durable and long-lasting. And when it's all nicely trimmed and finished, it'll just say... This man can what he's doing. Oh, there you go. So I've seen I've seen a few really nice yew hedges, but there's no many of them, well, you know. It's interesting the Royal Botanic Garden chose you to replace its hedge all the way around oh, the really? boundary of the garden. Oh, so you're in good company. That's maybe what I got the, the wee And for you're ordering <laughs> yours, I make them in we as well, Richie, because I'm looking for, for hedge plants as well, just oh, to replace things. Aye, we could just do this together. I suppose my only other consideration, Dave, is I'm actually I'm planting over a cellar. Uh, which is it's not that shallow, but is it is it a deep rooted thing, you can? No, I mean, if it's got two to three feet of soil, a couple yeah. of feet, that'll be dandy. Oh, good, good, yeah, that's that's. And it's well drought, it's, it, 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 it's drought tolerant to a degree as well. Once it's established, all right. I mean, you think some of the old yew trees that you see in churchyards, yeah. they're three, four, five, six hundred year old. Oh come on, goodness, yeah. Man. If you look after it, it'll treat you with the respect it Uh deserves. You know, I Uh mean, a a good yew hedge, 
Honestly, we maybe a wee bit more than some others to plant. Yeah. But it's gonna be it's gonna be so super when it's finished. Oh, I'm really encouraged by that, Dave. Thank you. That's brilliant. Dandy. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dandy. No, um I was up in Fochabers in Murrayshire near that long ago and it was roasting. It was Costa del Fochabers, I can tell you. I think it was about thirty four degrees where we were. And I was visiting Gordon Young's garden, which is amazing. It's one of my favourite gardens in the world. And Gordon uh, gave me a look at this tree and I sent a photograph to you Dave to identify if it is because it's a mystery what do you think it is well I I got the photograph I'm pretty certain it's a chestnut I think it's most likely Aeschylus Hippocastanum Umbracolifera it might be a variety called Memigiri but no I'm leaning more towards the first one Aeschylus Hippocastana Umbracolifera um, it's kind of difficult to be absolutely certain just looking at one picture of one leaf, but I'm pretty certain that's what it is. I was I looking for the conkers, I'll be honest. It's a fancy <laughs> buckeye. Ah, right, uh, and you've got another question for you. He has mealybug in his conservatory. What, uh, what can you do about that? Oh, then we hear a scunner. That's just exactly what it is. The best answer on a small scale is the use of paintbrush, with a wee bit diluted methylated spirits and water, and that's one part methylated spirits to about 80 parts water. If you don't want to use methylated spirits, then you can use isoprilk and rubbing alcohol mm. instead. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea just to test that on a leaf of the plant that's infected, somewhere out of sight, just to make sure that the plant will tolerate it without the leaves getting damaged. Now, some folk actually spray the solution all over the plant. I I don't recommend that. I think it's much better just to tuck your time and dab the wee bleeders with a quarter to half inch paintbrush and just give them a good soaking. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, wash off what's left with a wee bit natural soapy water and then rinse the leaf. You could try biological controls, but that's complicated and it gets a bit expensive. I mean, paintbrush... Methylated spirits in water or rubbing alcohol in water, dib dab, dib dab, and you'll soon get rid of that wee scunner. It's a big conservatory. It's a biggie. You'll be there for a long time, Dabby. But I mean, I'll be honest with you, when I managed the glass houses in the Royal Botanic Garden, you know, much, much bigger than any domestic conservatory, for the bulk of, you know, localised infections, that's how we set about tackling it. Jeepers. All right. Well, there you are, Gordon, and thank you for a fantastic day. It was really, really enjoyable and really, really hot. But your garden is just looking fantastic. Now, it is with great pleasure that we return to Loch Haber and find Claire Patterson in her kitchen. This time, talking a, a cue for through the Hearst theme. Claire, the stage is yours. <laughs> Well, Frida, we've got some all this lovely fruit ripening at the moment. So we've got the apples, we've got the plums, we've got the brambles and the hedgerows. So we're going to make well good use of those. So today we're going to start with a plum and bramble frangipan tart. And I've taken a wee bit of inspiration from those young beekeepers. So we've got a wee bit of honey in there as well, just which goes really, really well with plums. So you need to start with a, a sweet pastry case. So you can make it yourself or you can buy it which you've blind baked, which just basically means that you've put a bit of parchment in it and some baking beans or dried beans and baked it just so it's set and dried. Mm-hmm. And then to make the frangipan filling, beat together four ounces of um, soft butter, three ounces of caster sugar, an ounce of runny honey, and then fold in 
two eggs and four ounces of ground almonds and a wee splash of almond extract. Spread that over your pastry case and then mm-hmm. top it with the half plums cut side up. Push some nice fat brambles into the gaps that around the um, tart and then brush the tops with just a tiny wee bit more of the honey and put that in a 170 Celsius oven for about 25-35 minutes until the frangipan's set and the fruit is lovely and tender and just a wee bit caramelised on top. Oh, boys. Right, apples. If you've still got space, we've got some apples. So but this is apple crepes. So basically, for start with a really simple batter. So whiz up four ounces of plain flour, two eggs, tablespoon of melted butter, half a pint of milk, and because it's going to be sweet, I'm going to put in a wee splash of vanilla extract and just put that to one side while you're making the filling because it's always good to let your batter sit for maybe half an hour or so before you use it. So peel, core and chop up some eating apples into sort of little, I don't know, little little cubes and then heat up a tablespoon of butter in a frying pan till it's foaming. Toss in the apples with a tablespoon of soft brown sugar and a wee pinch of salt. Cook, tossing them gently until the apples are tender and they're slightly caramelised. And then put them to one side and make your crepes. So to make the crepes, heat a pan until it's fairly hot. Wipe it round with a wee bit of butter. And then pour in a ladle of batter and swirl it quickly so you thinly coat the fat pan. You want to get it as thin as you as you can. Leave it for a moment or two just to cook and then flip it over and cook it for another minute. And then just repeat with the rest of your batter so you're going up the big stack of the crepes. Just pop a wee bit of parchment paper or foil in between them so they didn't stick together. And then to serve, put a spoonful of your apples into a crepe, maybe a wee dollop of whipped cream, fold it into quarters and a wee sprinkle of icing sugar on the top just to, <laughs> to give that lovely finishing touch. I love the way you make it sound so easy and so quick. You know, I'm still <laughs> scuttering about, well, I'm nearly am I scuttering about with salads, as our illustrious gardener mentioned earlier on, but I'm still scuttering about trying to do perfect rice, boiling, <laughs> boiling rice. Okay, I'm getting better. I'm getting better, but I'm going to try a couple of these. I love the, the cucumber one and the apple. I, I was my, my apple harvest this year is good. One of the good things that's good. happened this year in the garden. Uh, discovery, lovely, lovely apple. Because your rabbits don't have a ladder. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> I'm not kidding. These it's rabbits are clever. It's being that I can hear hammering in the middle of the night. All right, come on. I get the road, get that bitty more. Hammer, 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 hammer. I'm not going to put anything past them. You have no idea how clever they are. Some folk think that sheep and rabbits are stupid. They're nay. Uh-uh. They are. They sit and watch you. And then they mark their plans at night and they're asking here and in meetings saying, this is what we're going to do, boys. Okay, let's go. And that is my opinion and I'm not going to change it. There are intelligent rabbits. Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of this programme. We gather our hairs then and enjoy the fruit of our labours. <laughs> well, some of us. Thank you for joining us again. It's time to close the sheds. Say Claire, Dave, Richie and myself, enjoy your garden and join us again. Bye the new!